New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and Happy New Year. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine transports us back to the Savannah, Georgia of 1858. Once there, we'll meet Charles Lamar, ignoring the laws of the United States in a South whispering about secession. Lamar organizes the transportation of hundreds of Africans aboard the yacht Wanderer. Now the Wanderer is a key part of today's story because Lamar chose the ship for its speed hoping to outrun any of the combined U.S. Navy and Royal Navy ships that were enforcing the ban on the slave trade that they'd enforced jointly since banning the practice at the beginning of the 1800s. Of course, no matter how fast the Wanderer made the trip across the Atlantic, it was no easy journey for the human beings jammed into its hold those that didn't die on the way found themselves the center of what we today call a firestorm when they reached Jekyll Island, Georgia. Lamar's criminal act of circumventing the slave trade ban struck a hammer blow on the fault lines of American society, marking the first importation of human beings as slaves in four decades. Our guide aboard this journey is Jim Jordan, author of The Slave Trader's Letterbook, Charles Lamar, The Wanderer, and Other Tales of the African Slave Trade. Jim Jordan researches and writes about the colonial antebellum and Civil War South. He's the author of the novel Savannah Gray, A Tale of Antebellum Georgia, and its sequel, Penny Savannah, A Tale of Civil War, Georgia. You've seen his articles in the Georgia Historical Quarterly and the Journal of Military History. Jim Jordan also earned the 2018 Georgia Historical Records Advisory Council of the University System of Georgia's Award for Excellence in Documenting Georgia's History. You can visit him online at jimjordan.com. Okay. Now that we've returned to the American South before emancipation, let's join Jim Jordan and crack open the Slave Trader's Letterbook. I'm joined on the line by Jim Jordan, author of The Slave Trader's Letterbook, Charles Lamar, The Wanderer, and Other Tales of the African Slave Trade. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Happy to be here. I want to open with a quote from Civil War Monitor. They write, 
the Slave Trader's Letterbook is much more than the main title indicates. And when I read that, after I'd read the book, I said, that's exactly right. That puts it so well, because Charles Lamar is more than meets the eye. He's not just a cookie-cutter villain. He's not somebody who might have been a bit character in Roots, who you don't really care, you don't really need any backstory or anything fleshed out about him. He's really more a smuggler than a traitor at this point. But even that doesn't hint at his complexity. And I felt throughout reading the book that I was chasing him. And I was saying, come on, just stop for a minute. Let me get a clear look at you, dude, so that I know who you are and I know your place in history. And then when I read your story about your personal journey to finding this book, I realized you were inspired by something similar to track down the real man, to pin him to the ground and say, who are you, Charles Lamar? So tell us, how did you become interested in finding the real man behind the myths and the masks that he wore? Well, I came across Charles Lamar when I was doing research for my first book, which was a historical novel about Savannah during the 30 years leading up to the Civil War. And the story was quite remarkable. Here's a 14-year-old boy who goes on a vacation with his father and his family. The ship that they're riding on explodes at sea, and he survives five days and nights on a piece of wreckage. As a 14-year-old, he nearly dies, but he's finally rescued. He does recover, and he's considered a hero of this tragedy. And as I kept reading, I learned that Charles became a slave smuggler. You're right. A slave trader is not an appropriate description. He was really a smuggler because by the time he got into it, the slave trade was illegal. I tried to reconcile in my mind, how did he go from this survivor of this terrible tragedy where he lost most of his family to a slave smuggler? And most of my original research was reading historians' accounts of Charles Lamar, and they reported him as a son of a wealthy Savannah businessman, which he was, who became wealthy and successful himself and got into the slave trade based on Southern principles, Southern rights, that it was his right to import slaves, that the federal government had no right to prohibit him. But as I did more research, uh, I learned that That wasn't Charlie Lamar at all, that he was really a failure at most of the businesses that he entered, legal and illegal. And he really blew through most of his father's fortune and businesses that his father, Gasway, left in Charlie's hands. So one important lesson I learned was that I've got to do my own primary research whenever I can. And of course... I did, and I wrote an article about Charles Lamar to clear the air, which was published in the Georgia Historical Quarterly. But then, of course, when I discovered the lost letters of Gazaway and Charlie, that was really the motivation to write the Slave Traders Letter Book, because it answered so many more questions. So that's how I was compelled, forced, motivated to really discover more about Charles Lamar because there was more to him than had been previously reported by historians. 
it seems amazing that for something as sweeping and written about and picked over as the Civil War, that we could still have more things to learn, that something could be found and it could produce the slave trader's letter book, something that here's a new book, here's a book with something new to say that corrects the record. I think of a professor once and he was called by a reporter and he told the reporter, well, such and such is really history revisionism. And the reporter said, well, what's that? Who started that? And he said, well, to revise history, probably the first guy was Herodotus. And then the reporter asked me if I had his number. <laughs> so that's kind of that's kind of that thing. We're always revising what we know and think we know. And that's the case here. You have this great moment where you fulfill a historian's dream. You find out that there's this cache of these letters. So take us to Upper Montclair, New Jersey. This is where Charles Lamar's letters and his father's letters, their secrets, some of this true face, they, they finally stop running, to continue my metaphor from earlier. They, they're finally caught here in the attic, and we could turn them to face us and say, okay, tell us who you really are. They're there gathering dust in various places for 150 years. So take us to that journey, because that's such a special one. Well, it was. I just want to say one thing before I go to that is that I don't think the historians that I have written about Charlie Lamar were revising history. I think it was just sloppy uh, research. Hmm. But the attic in New Jersey, I had done a lot of research in the Georgia Historical Society in Savannah, a fabulous research center. And again, my original research was done for a uh, historical novel. And I got to know the librarians and the archivists uh, at the Georgia Historical Society uh, pretty well. After I finished Savannah Gray, I started on the sequel. And I guess I got about a year into the research for the sequel when I got a call from the head archivist at the Georgia Historical Society, saying that she just received a phone call from a woman in New Jersey who had three steamer trunks full of Gasway Lamar's papers in her attic. That was Charlie's father. And she wanted to sell them. The archivist said, look, we don't usually buy these collections. They're usually donated by families. But would you like to go up to New Jersey and uh, at least authenticate the papers? And my heart was pounding. Most historians never get this opportunity. Here I am, a relative novice, and I said, of course. But I did ask her before I hung up, how in the world did the papers of a significant, wealthy Savannah businessman from the 19th century wind up in an attic in Montclair, New Jersey? <laughs> and she said, well, I don't know. Why don't you ask her when you get up there? So a few weeks later, I was in the woman's place. Now, she had since moved, but she moved the papers with her. And she allowed me the use of her study for three days to go through the papers. And I, I just can't explain what it was like when she led me into the room and pointed to the three steamer trunks on the floor. And I opened them up, and I saw letter books and accounting books and loose papers and pamphlets. 
it was quite a moment in my life. I it's got to be in the top five. You didn't know her at all either. I did not know her at all. I called her, as I said before uh, I went up there and introduced myself and told her that I was a representative of the Georgia Historical Society, that I wanted to authenticate the papers. And she said, fine. She couldn't be more gracious and allowing me the use of her place and looking at the papers. And by the way, we're still in touch. We're friendly. Whenever I go up north to visit friends, I always uh, visit her. Uh, We always go out to dinner and have a laugh or two. But I spent those three days and realized that I had a treasure trove of Southern history right at my fingertips. Of course, the letters were real. Most of the papers were Gazaway's papers, but they were fascinating as well. Gazaway, by the way, was probably a more significant individual during the antebellum and Civil War years than Charlie was. But Charlie did, of course, the most outrageous act with his attempt to import Africans on the Wanderer. So he was probably more nationally known, but Gazaway was a more important person. But at any rate, included in this collection of papers were copies of 70 of Charles's letters involving his schemes during the years about 1856 to 1861. And of course, the main scheme was his slave trading endeavors. But also, he was involved in something called the Cuban filibustering movement of the 1850s. There was a movement in the 1850s by private individuals, including some Cuban expatriates living in the United States and some private Americans, to hire a mercenary army, attack Cuba, overthrow Spanish rule, make Cuba an American territory, a slaveholding territory, of course, because it was a slaveholding island, bring Cuba into the United States as one or more territories to eventually become slave states. Charlie, of course, got involved in it, but it's a fascinating, forgotten piece of American history. But, of course, Charlie's letters, uh, some of his letters reveal this because he was involved in it as the major Georgia representative of one of the organizations that was trying to accomplish this, hire this army. But of course, there were his letters detailing his activities in the slave trade. So that was the inspiration for me. I knew I had to write something about this collection, and I had done so much research on Charlie that I realized that I had to do something dealing with his letters that were in this collection. And thus, that's the evolution to the Slave Traders Letter Book. He seems like one of those guys that could never pass up a scheme. He's almost like a twisted Ralph Cramden, where if there's honest pay to be made from nine to five, he just he recoils from it. His eyes roll back in his head, and he decides he's going to go for the flashy thing, which is how he ends up here in your book instead of his father. You mentioned the SS Pulaski there. That was the ship that explodes and catches fire and takes his whole family with it. And yet he doesn't reflect on that at all. That's one thing, which is incredible to me. You close the chapter titled, You Are a Noble Boy, by writing, It would be impossible to determine the effect of the Pulaski disaster on young Charles Lamar. He would never mention it in any of his surviving letters, unquote. 
to a modern reader, that seems incredible because everyone's emoting and we work through our grief very publicly, sometimes too publicly. That lack of reflection is really frustrating. And yet you're able to flesh him out and see the man that he becomes. And then you have another moment of serendipity where the wreck of the ship turns up. Did they not know where it was for the two centuries? And what is left of it now? Well, just to review the enormity of the tragedy, the ship, which was going from Savannah to Baltimore with a one-night stop in Charleston, Charlie lost his mother, three sisters, two brothers, and a cousin when the ship blew up at sea. Only his father, Gazaway, and his aunt, Rebecca, survived. So practically his whole immediate family was wiped out. Again, he survived after five days and nights on a piece of wreckage. He was rescued, he recovered, and I just don't think that in those days people dwelled on tragedies or minor tragedies in their lives. Charles was 14 at the time. They didn't have Twitter or texting or emails. I, I don't think that at 14, I've never recovered any of his writings from that early an age, and I just don't think that they wrote about it. And I think by the time he got over the tragedy, he was not forced by any conviction to write about it. I think in those days, they accepted tragedy or hardships as part of life more than they do now, where you're right, they emote so much and they have to write about it. And I don't even think they had psychiatrists or psychologists in those days. So I've never seen a letter where he even mentions the tragedy. In those days, they'd even burn their papers. If you were a person of note, like President James Monroe or George Washington wanted his burned upon his death, it's always frustrating to a historian because they didn't think that your childhood mattered. They thought it was what you became as an adult that mattered. Three sisters, two brothers, and a cousin die and his mother, correct? Yes. We all watch the Brady Bunch, right? Take Bobby Brady, let's say, and... All the other kids die, so the three sisters die, both brothers and cousin Oliver, and the mother dies. So the only people you have surviving out of that big family is Mike Brady is the father and one of the boys. It's a story just in and of itself, but we keep moving at a fast pace like the wanderer on the seas, on the waves, cutting through and finding all these amazing things that here you're sympathetic for somebody who goes through that, even though then you realize he's going to grow up to steal people from their home continent and drag them to the U.S. to be sold into slavery. It's a very multifaceted story, and I have to congratulate you. As somebody who's not a trained historian, you dive right in there. After you get over that eureka moment in the attic, you have to realize, my gosh, I have to squint at all this little 150-year-old printing and try to get through it and, and archive it, right? That That's a big <laughs> challenge to take on. It was, but first of all, the Pulaski had to be on his mind for years. It's not something that anybody could have forgotten. You're losing your whole family. Well, your mother, three sisters, two brothers, and a cousin. So it had to weigh, but I just found no trace of him ever explaining anything. Now, his father did marry a year later. Gazaway recovered to marry, and who knows, Charlie had a new family all of a sudden. 
And again, I can't explain it. I thought about it. It's part of the mystery of Charles Lamar going from that tragedy to a slave trader. But in reading the letters, there were two challenges. Number one, to figure out Charles's penmanship and to be able to uh, transcribe the letters. The letters were pretty well preserved, not all of them, but just for the listener, I want to explain how they made copies of letters in those days. They didn't rewrite the letters. What they did was they bought a bound volume of blank pages, sort of onion skin quality, and they would write a letter on a separate piece of paper. Then they would put it on sort of a damp blotter, and they would hold that under one of the blank pages in the bound book. Then they would put a blotter on top of that blank page, and they'd put it in a letterpress, and they'd screw it down so that they squeezed the bound book pages together, and the ink from the letter would seep through to the blank page above. Hmm. And that's how they made copies of letters. It sounds a little complicated, but that's how they did it. And the father left hundreds, if not thousands, of copies of letters. Charles left many fewer. But that's how they made copies of letters. And that's when I call it a slave trader's letter book. The letter book is copies of his letters, which he made copies of in that process that I described with the letterpress. So transcribing the letters, it took me a little time to get used to his penmanship, but of course I did. I'd read so many of his letters. That was one challenge, and I was able to transcribe almost all the words, but the real challenge was annotating the letters explaining who these people were that he mentions or the events that he mentions that have been forgotten by history. Somehow, Charlie meets the people from the underbelly of American politics. How he comes across them, I don't know, but it seems like he was destined to meet them all. Hmm. And they're really a bunch of crazy characters. There's the one fellow, Dr. Ramsey from Atlanta, who he meets through the Cuban filibustering scheme, who is part of the Cuban filibustering scheme, and eventually he's Atlanta's first doctor. He published a magazine called the Georgia Blister and Critic, hmm. and he would eventually be accused of defrauding the government in a Revolutionary War pension scheme. Wow. And would commit suicide in a jail in Georgia. I mean, just an amazing character, but Charlie meets him. And so he mentions Dr. Ramsey in a letter. And of course, if I'm going to publish this book, which would include the letters, I would have to find out who Dr. Henry Ramsey was. You just can't imagine how much research that took just to find out what I hmm. told you. But it does, and that was Part of the challenge, of course, was annotating these letters so the reader could understand what Charlie was talking about and who Charlie was talking about. I wanted to ask you to read a letter, and you have those here because you had a whole trunk full of them. So first you distill them down into the slave trader's letter book, and now you can read us one of them here, distill it down further. Give us a flavor because 
The letters are a big part of the book, but it may surprise people from the title, The Slave Trader's Letter Book, that it's not all just reprinted letters. You have a lot more in there. But the letters give us the story in his own voice. So set it up and read it for us. Sure. Well, here's one. It's letter number 17, and it's dated October 31st, 1857. So this is before The Wanderer. This was Charles's first attempt at the slave trade, which, like almost everything he did, was a failure. But he's writing to his father, who apparently had heard about the failure of the ship was called the E.A. Rawlins. Here's Charles answering Gazaway, who apparently wasn't too happy with his son's attempts at the slave trade. Dear father, times are not, nor are they going to be, as bad as you divine. Nor are you the prophet you take the credit of being. I am not broke, nor do I intend to be. I am pressed for ready means, not so much on my own account as others. It will be all right in time. So Charlie's taking a shot at his father here for business talk. But a common theme in Charlie's letters, all his problems are due to other people, not his own. Then he gets into the failure of the E.A. Rawlins and the criticism of the involvement in the slave trade. You need not give yourself any uneasiness about the Africans and the slave trade. I was astonished at some of the remarks in your letter. They show that you have been imbued with something more than the panic. For example, you say an expedition to the moon would have been equally sensible and no more contrary to the laws of providence and of the sewer doctrine. May God in his mercy forgive you for all your attempts to violate his will and his laws. That's a quote from his father's letter, what I just read. Following out the same train of thought, where would it land the whole southern community did the Negroes not all come originally from the coast of Africa? What is the difference between going to Africa and Virginia for Negroes? And if there is a difference, is not that difference in favor of going to Africa? You need not reproach yourself for not interposing with a stronger power than argument and persuasion to prevent the expedition. There was nothing you or the government could have done to have prevented it. Let all the sin be on me. I am willing to assume it all. So here he is fighting back with his father, who disapproves of his involvement in the slave trade. He says something that's very curious. Charlie was involved in the illegal African slave trade, but it was legal during these days. Interstate slave trade was legal. In other words, based on state law, it was legal to send slaves from Virginia to, let's say, Georgia or Texas. That was legal. It was the African slave trade bringing in Africans from Africa or any foreign territory that was illegal. And Charlie's advancing the argument. He's asking, what is the difference between going to Africa and Virginia for Negroes? Well, there's a major difference, and Charlie doesn't recognize it. And that difference happens to be the Middle Passage, the inhumane stuffing of holds of ships and sending Africans on a seven-week journey across the sea where so many died or got mortally sick. 
as opposed to a much shorter trip where the conditions weren't nearly as bad going from Virginia to Georgia, let's say. But Charlie doesn't recognize that, that the death rate from the Middle Passage, the inhumanity of the Middle Passage. So it's a, it's a fascinating letter, and I explain that, of course, in the annotations. But Charlie, at this point, is saying, let all the sin be on me. Neither you, Father, nor the government can stop me. And, of course, he would continue on with his attempts to import Africans. So that's one of the letters, and I find it one of the more fascinating ones. I mentioned earlier the idea of revising history, and I didn't mean it the way that we speak of it now, history revisionism, or that people were deliberately hiding things, although I'm sure in many cases they were with this myth that comes to us in the Gilded Age of the lost cause and even the Ken Burns documentary, which people are, are probably going to think is, is a little bit heresy for a history show, but the way that you want to tell a story on TV is not how history always is. And to cast it as well, the North and the South, the, everybody gets together and binds up the nation's wounds. It's great. You get to use all those high-minded quotes by Lincoln and by Grant, let us have peace. But we forget, deliberately have to, to tell that rosy, happy ending. You have to forget the suffering of the freedmen in the Southern states at that time, for instance. That's just one thing that you have to overlook to be able to tell that story of the nation reuniting and show these old, now in their 80s, Civil War veterans from both sides, hand in hand. This is sort of what happened with Charles Lamar, where he has this idealized view that goes down in history from that Gilded Age period. They describe it here in your press material as a savvy entrepreneur and principled rebel. This is something that when you discover those trunks, that's one of those masks that I keep referring to that he was wearing, where he really controlled his PR, and you get a flavor of that in that letter you, that you just read, and you could see a lot of people in any time, a lot of sons writing that to their fathers. You don't know everything. You're not able to see the future. Why don't you bet on the Super Bowl if you know so much about what's going to happen tomorrow, right? <laughs> he has that that attitude and that cockiness, and let the sin be on me, even though he clearly doesn't think it's a sin what he's doing. He thinks it's a great great noble enterprise and he's going to he's going to do it and he's not going to listen to you old man and I'm not going to do your boring work I'm not going into the family business that's his attitude there and I wondered were there people that clung to those myths or did you meet with pretty much universal acclaim by this point in time for revising it in the sense that you cleared up the picture, that you confirmed, for one thing, those letters that have been kicking around thought to be attributed to Charles Lamar for so long, but also you were able to flesh him out and finally put him before people. Was there anybody who clung to the old image of him as this idealized Southern gentleman? Well, actually, other than me and a few historians, uh, Charlie Lamar isn't that well-known and historical figure. He probably should be. I hope he is after my book. All the historians that have written about Charlie have described him as being a successful businessman, a knockoff of his father, hardworking, willing to take on the, the difficult businesses and seeing them through. And he saw the African slave trade as a a Southern right, and that the government had no right to take away from the Southerners. 
and that he was going to bring in Africans to the United States, regardless of what the government thought. The more I dug into his background, I learned that he was a failure. His father handed him a business on a silver platter. The father was into, they were into shipping, warehousing, cotton press, very successful businesses in those days, very successful enterprises. And of course, Charlie had that type of mind where he wanted the fast buck. He sort of ignored the family businesses, drove them into the ground. He invested in new businesses like plank roads and gold mining. He even invested in the interstate slave trade, which I described before as being legal, and he failed at all of them. And I realized that by the time he went into the slave trade, he was broke and he needed money. And so I'm sure I can say with certainty that he was in favor of the slave trade and he was in favor of Southern rights, but he was more driven by a need for money than he was anything else. And that was surprising to me to learn that because it was so contrary to what all the historians had said about him. So I was happy to be able to, I think I make a a pretty valid case that he was broke and that was his primary motivation. I was glad to be able to set the record straight on that. Uh, He really doesn't deserve the credit for standing up for Southern rights. He was standing up for Charlie Lamar's bank account. You're enjoying my conversation with Jim Jordan, author of The Slave Trader's Letterbook, Charles Lamar, The Wanderer, and Other Tales of the African Slave Trade. You can visit him online at jimjordanauthor.com. James A. Cox of Midwest Book Review writes of the book, The Slave Trader's Letterbook is an impressively informative and engaging read from cover to cover. While unreservedly recommended for both community and academic library 19th century American history collections, it should be noted for the personal reading lists of students, academia, and non-specialist general readers with an interest in the subject. Jim, I like that Mr. Cox points out that the Slave Trader's Letterbook isn't just for academics or Civil War buffs. You craft something here that will appeal to anybody, partially maybe because you aren't a traditional teaching historian. You're not somebody who learned, quote unquote, the right way to do it. And so you don't know. Sometimes that's a great thing. That's something when I spoke with Winston Groom, the in addition to being the author of Forrest Gump, we talked about the allies, about Stalin, FDR, and Churchill. And he said, I have no problem for the academic historians. I think they do a great service, but I'm a storyteller first and foremost. So he never learned that. And I feel like in the Slave Trader's Letterbook, it's very similar. You're able to look at something like you write in Chapter 5, Charles needed a big score more than ever, which you just alluded to there. He was looking out for number one. He wasn't doing some high-minded thing. He wasn't thinking of the Southern cause. He was thinking of his back pocket or wherever they kept their wallets then in the antebellum days. So is that how you approached it? How did you plan the book to appeal to that wider audience and be able to earn that review from James A. Cox, where he's basically telling everybody to put it on your shelf, no matter who you are, pick up the Slave Trader's Letterbook and give it a shot. 
Well, it wasn't an easy process, and I must admit I had some help from the editors at the University of Georgia Press, but I knew that I had discovered the letter book. I had to include the letters, but I also knew that I had to tell the story. So the book is really in two parts. The first part is the narrative of Charles Lamar and how he developed into this young hero into a uh, fairly notorious slave trader who led a syndicate that committed one of the great crimes of the first half of the 19th century. Uh, so that was my resolution, to to tell the story in a narrative, but also include the letters, the full letters that academics could read, but also the layperson who just simply has an interest in the topic could read and understand. That's how it boiled down. It wasn't that easy a process, but that was the final result. You mentioned some of his father's businesses, but one you didn't mention was the business of mining guano, which is always a fun one to talk about. I think that if I was a teacher of kids, maybe in middle school or younger, that would be a fun thing to get your attention. Guano is, of course, bird droppings. So imagine that's your business, right? Get a big pile of bird waste there. I think uh, any kid who's had a parakeet can't imagine there would be any value in that stuff that's stuck to the New York Times or whatever you use at the bottom of the cage. But it was indeed a booming business and a resource in the 19th century. In fact, Spain and a few South American neighbors, they fought the guano war over this resource. So Sherman says war is hell, but here war is something else that starts with an S and ends with an it. So <laughs> Charles Lamar, here's this guy who has all these romantic notions and this these grand plans for himself. He's certainly not going to try something like mining the, you know, running the, the family bird excrement business. You, in fact, use the term grandeur, that that's how he looks at it when he's going to try his hand at the slave trade, which shows his perspective that's so different and warped compared to ours, we would say. There's nothing grand about shoving all those people in the hold of the wanderer, knowing that so many of them are going to die on the way from Africa to the U.S. coast. This is a exciting, illegal enterprise. So is the filibustering. He's always trying for that score. Do you think that there was ever a chance that there's there's something you could change in him that maybe he would have been able to, if not have a nine to five job, maybe been successful at one of these other things that he tried, even the importing of the Africans from Africa? Or do you think that he was just so flawed or just such a such a chaser of his dreams that it was impossible for him ever to conform to regular society, ever to ever to have a job? Was he just doomed to chase windmills his whole life? Very interesting question in that, as I said before, his father in 1846, when Charles was 22, moved up to New York with his new family. Charles was left in charge of the family business in Savannah. Again, it was warehousing, it was shipping, it was a cotton press, it was a very successful uh, enterprise. And Charles ran it for a while, and it seemed like, it, for the first five or six years, he seemed like he did a pretty good job at it. But it was just the allure. I can't explain whether it was danger, along with quick profits, but no business interested him like the slave trade. He just gravitated to that, and it was for the quick kill, but that is what he wanted. Now, having said that, when he 
was in charge of the family business in Savannah in around 1850, he went out and he built a new cotton press. So when I say a cotton press, lots of cotton planters sent their loose cotton in bags and burlap saps into Savannah, and they would send them to a cotton press where they would press the cotton into bales for shipping purposes. So they had steam presses then for that. So it was uh, fairly sophisticated for that time. And Charlie built a state-of-the-art cotton press. Now, what happened? It eventually burned down, and Charles didn't even have the cotton press insured or the warehouse where they stored the cotton insured. So even where he did something successfully, he blew it by not having it insured. I mean, who would not insure a a, cotton is very flammable. That's true. Who would not think to insure that, especially since his father was in the insurance business. So he did something successful, but he still blew it. He eventually built a flour mill in Savannah, which was apparently successful, but he sold it so he could finance his interest in the Wanderer. He started, believe it or not, he started a bank, but it was only successful because his father took over the management of it. So he wasn't a dumb guy by any means. If you read his letters, the letters are well written, and it displays somewhat of a a logical, if not troubled, mind. But again, He was just drawn to the dark side. He was drawn to the illegal side. He was drawn to filibustering. He was really drawn to the slave trade. So he could possibly have started a successful business, and he did, but could he stay focused on it? I don't think so. It was just the way he was put together, the way he was wrapped, that he would eventually uh, gravitate to something illegal. Even not getting the insurance, that's a, that's a risky thing and a little bit of a thrill and cut a corner. It seems to be very much in his makeup, in his MO. In fact, he's one of those guys also, so many things in the slave traders letterbook that I feel like I could relate to. We know people like that, even though they lived so long ago, mm-hmm. it, there are still things we can relate to, which is what good history is. He is one of those guys in that sense who you get frustrated reading it because He never pays for anything in the literal or figurative sense. He's surrounded by good people who keep bailing him out. He has his father who bails him out of these self-created messes that he gets into. His wife, his loving wife, Caro, she spends almost 20 years after he dies paying off his debts. Even the Confederate Army gives him a second chance after they discharge him. There are a lot of people that stick with him, and even after he dies, he has people writing nice things about him and giving giving us this version that's very spun, I guess we'd say in modern terms. They, they spin his legacy. What was it about him that made people stick by him, that made him a figure that you wanted to stand up for if you were a person of the time or a person in his orbit? What was it? Because you'd think, especially after the war, it would have been easy to just say, well, this guy was, was with the lost cause. I know they romanticized it later, but he had staying power, which is something. He did. I, I picture Charlie Lamar as the guy who walks into the bar, buys everybody around a drinks, 
tells a bunch of jokes that everybody laughs at, and he slaps everybody on the shoulder and asks them about their family and their kids and then tells a few more dirty jokes. That's how I uh, visualized Charlie. He was a sportsman. He was into rowboat racing. Today, he might be called, barring the slave trade, of course, and his illegal activities, he'd be called a man's man. So you could see some how that some men of that ilk would be attracted to him and find him amusing. He was really bailed out by his father. And I'm sort of convinced, and I don't know how I make this case in the book if I did make the case, but I think the father just felt so guilty that this was the only surviving member of his immediate family. So as bad as Charlie acted in terms of taking care of the family business in Savannah, in uh, terms of Charlie's uh, uh, sharp criticisms of his father, Gazaway always came back and bailed him out, even though he would say in his letters, don't come to me for any more money. <laughs> you're, you're at the end of the rope. Your credit is dead with me. Yet Gazaway would still be there bailing him out. So after the Wanderer and when the Civil War started and Charlie, he went into actually... Originally, he was in state service as opposed to the uh, Confederate Army. Believe it or not, he would be stationed on Jekyll Island, where the uh, Wanderer Africans were landed three years before. Charlie actually got kicked out of the service. Now, it's almost unbelievable. Picture this. The Civil War has started, and the South needs manpower. What do you have to do to get kicked out of the Confederate Army? <laughs> Especially with his father's connections. Uh, yeah, Charlie, <laughs> Charlie managed to get kicked out, but he formed, he formed a cavalry uh, company and got accepted into the uh, state militia that way. He clearly had that appeal, that masculine appeal to some people, not everybody, because, I mean, if look, if he were not a slave trader, and here's a guy that, let's say, just simply, I don't know, robbed banks, yet he was into rowboat racing, he got into duels, he got into fistfights, he was a horseman. This is the stuff of a Hollywood movie. They've made movies of less interesting characters. So there was an appeal, and of course his wife loved him, and she forgave him for being a slave trader as a loyal wife. And then after Charlie said in one of his letters that I feel sorry for the person that will have to settle my estate if I when I die, and of course she she bore the burden of that. It took her at least twenty years of running the family business to pay off all the creditors. He was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt when he died, but she, she stood by him and eventually cleared, cleared all his debts. Uh, that's an incredible story. And as a matter of fact, if when Gazaway moved to New York in 1846, she had left, he had left her in charge instead of him, certainly the businesses would have worked out better. But you're right, he had some attraction to some people that stood by him. And, uh, of course, afterwards, I think I make this pretty clear that 
a majority of Southerners did not want to legalize the illegal African slave trade. So I don't think Charlie gained supporters because he wanted to legalize it. I think Southerners in general liked Charlie because he thumbed his nose at the North and challenged the North. And I think that's where he gained general popularity was from that and not trying to reactivate the African slave trade. Sort of like Bonnie and Clyde, where we talked in two books with the novelist Jenny L. Walsh about Bonnie and Clyde or novelized versions where nobody they were murderers. And yet, because they were sticking to the banks in the Great Depression and people were upset with them, they they hit a sweet spot, historically speaking, where people said, well, we're not looking at them in that part of there. We're not picturing being the guy at the other end of the gun. We're picturing being, you know, being the people that they're sticking it to that banker or took our home away. So that's something that brings me to the next question, which is how readers, not to mention historians, often shy away from controversial topics or shameful topics. The slave trade in the U.S. is both things. It's hard to come at and to talk about honestly and have some things here as you do in the slave traders letter book that are surprising, that we've let some false history seep into the conventional wisdom and it changes the way we view it. We're not getting an accurate picture in part because we're ashamed or afraid to look at it. In a way, the Great War is that way where there's just so much death and it's so sad to look at it and so many mistakes were made, so many wrongs were made, wrong decisions. People are suffering and dying that here the Great War lasts a few years, but I mean this is lasting hundreds of years and the legacy of slavery is still with us today. What do you hope that your readers will learn about those realities of the slave trade and these four decades, which probably surprises people to hear that it was banned. People probably think that the people were coming from Africa continuously. But in fact, if you look at some maps, they'll show you how many people are going to South America. It's it's a huge arrow proportionally compared to the people that are coming to the U.S., in part because the U.K. and then eventually joining with the U.S. bans it because of the cruelty you spoke of earlier, being shoved down in the hold of ships like the Wanderer. So what do you hope that readers will gain from reading the Slave Traders Letter book to get that fuller picture? To explain Charles Lamar and his slave trading exploits in the Wanderer, I had to do some pretty heavy research into the transatlantic African slave trade for context. And the history of it is remarkable and remarkably sad. Perhaps one of the most incredible facts of the transatlantic African slave trade is that it was legal for 290 years. That's three centuries. Dean, think of it. What business lasts for 300 years? Never thought of it that way. I mean, there's the oldest profession. Even winemaking's changed over the years. Very few, but here is one of the most inhumane businesses, it lasts for 290 years as legal. All the major Atlantic maritime powers thought it was perfectly fine to send ships to the coast of Africa, stuff the holds with captives, send them on a 
journey across the seas that would last from four to seven weeks and then sell them into a lifetime of bondage into in the new world it's just in it's inconceivable if it lasted for five years but it lasted for 290 years so i would like the reader to understand that and understand just the unbelievable inhumanity that that was acceptable to at that time the modern world Fortunately, the uh, moral conscience of uh, Great Britain and the United States finally uh, wakened, and they banned it in 1808, approximately the same time, not to the day, but approximately the same time. And then it was England that really pursued the other nations to try and ban it as well. And their efforts paid off in about 22 years. Uh, So by 1830, the transatlantic African slave trade was was essentially banned. But then, immediately, an illegal slave trade popped up. And I explain how that illegal slave trade could thrive. The activity, the number of shipments in those years, the illegal years, were as great as the years preceding the ban. And I explain how that happened and that most of those captives, most of those enslaved Africans, as a matter of fact, almost all of them went to Brazil or Cuba. They didn't come to the United States. So the wanderer, when it landed with slaves in 1858 on Jekyll Island, it was the first known successful landing of Africans on American shores in about 40 years. So that explains the enormity of the crime, the enormity of the Wanderer incident, the Wanderer saga. So if I can sum up my response, what I'd like the reader to learn through this book is the just the inhumanity of the trade and how it was able to go on for so long legally, and then when it became illegal, how it was able to thrive. The the conditions of a slave ship, which I describe, one finds it hard to accept that anybody could be so cruel as to partake in it, legally or illegally. That is the message. And uh, while Lamar, who didn't go on the voyage of the Wanderer, he masterminded it, but he did not actually uh, go on the ship, while he might be remembered as a storied character He partook in murder, some degree of it. Trafficking in human flesh, as they say, bringing these people over. And he does choose that fast yacht, the Wanderer, but they're certainly not enjoying anything like a yacht-like experience crammed down there in the hold. It's just a terrible experience that you describe here in the Slave Trader's Letter Book. One thing, though, about the Wanderer, and you write that there was never a ship like her and how fast it was, and that was one of his appeals using the Wanderer. He figured he could outrun any authorities. It mirrors your journey a little bit because the ship begins its life in Long Island, and then it ends up in Georgia, and that's just what you did, and you're not you're not trained as a historian either. So I love that kind of thing because, as I hinted at earlier, I love to 
talk to young people and often they worry about what their future is going to be. And other than singing K Sarah Sarah, there you know, whatever will be will be. I like to tell them about people's journey in life that I've read in history or experienced myself, where you don't have to decide who you're gonna be at 14. Your job that you're gonna have may not even exist yet. Fill your toolkit and decide what what you want, follow your passions, and hopefully give yourself the flexibility to be able to do those kind of things. You do that here in your life where you follow an interest in history, even though you didn't go and get a PhD or, or a master's in history. And so that helps you. You you make that work for you and bring it here to life in the Slave Traders Letter Book and in your two novels. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you go from being a CPA and working with numbers to writing history. And how do those two disciplines overlap, if at all? Well, there is a, an important overlap. I grew up on Long Island. I went to Pace University in New York City, became a CPA, and spent most of my professional career in New York, in the Northeast, as a financial analyst and a financial systems consultant. But, you know, New York can wear on you after uh, 30 years or some odd years. It gets cold. It's very fast-paced. And my wife and I decided to uh, have a change of pace and move down south. And we moved to Kalawasee Island, which is right outside of Beaufort, South Carolina, which is only a 35, 40-minute drive to Savannah, Georgia. So we settled down here and decided on a slower pace of life. And I thought I'd be playing a lot of golf, as a matter of fact, a lot of great golf. And that didn't work out so well. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I was as miserable a failure in golf as Charlie Lamar was in uh, his business. But nobody got hurt. So uh, <laughs> I had decided I had to do something else with the rest of my life. And I always liked history and I always liked architecture. So after I chucked my clubs in a pond by the 18th <laughs> hole of my uh, local golf course, I went into Savannah and got a job as a tour guide. I wanted to study for the tours and prepare for the tours, and that's when I just uh, discovered the Georgia Historical Society in Savannah. And I got so fascinated by all the stories of the Old South. Uh, it was quite a bit different than what I learned in school, but there were just so many interesting stories hidden in the squares and the streets and the houses and the river of Savannah. And I wanted to tell those stories somehow, and I couldn't do it on a two-hour walking tour. So I decided to write an historical novel, and that's how I really got started in, in writing. Savannah Gray took me four and a half years to write, and it's quite heavily researched, even though it is an historical novel. And I wrote the sequel, Penny Savannah, and the Slave Trader's Letter book at the same time, just because... I discovered the papers while I was writing the sequel. I wouldn't recommend anybody write two books at the same time, but huh. that's the way it worked out for me. So that was another nine years of intense research. And I can't tell you how happy I am that I stunk at golf <laughs> because it really gave me a second career that I've just been so involved in and so committed to and so passionate about it just worked out for the best. 
my previous life uh, in a uh, world of finance and financial systems, it just seems like it was a different lifetime as opposed to 20 years ago. And I'm fascinated by it. And hopefully uh, when I go, they'll be carrying me out of some library or <laughs> library of Congress of the Georgia Historical Society because I intend to continue researching and writing as long as I can. I think it was very nice in your acknowledgments that you say you owe special gratitude to Gordon Byrne Smith. I think that should encourage everybody, maybe people who are listening, who say, I'm not a trained historian. I, I can't write a book. I can't, I can't do anything like that. I'm not going to get an article published. Why try? But here's a local Savannah historian, and he helps you. And I like those people. In fact, I try to make a point of being that person myself, of going out of my way to help people when they're trying to tell their stories or do things in life. That's very rewarding for me to be able to help people. Mr. Gordon Byrne Smith, he helps you. And you say to this day, you miss him since he passed away in 2013, that you go in there and you expect to see him at the Historical Society. What was it like to have someone like that? How, how did it feel and what encouragement can he give to people that maybe want to find their own Gordon Byrne Smith out there to give them a hand when they don't really know what they're looking for and the Dewey Decimal System's not helping? Well, because I'm not a degreed historian, I don't have all of those contacts that I would have had had I gone and gotten a master's and a PhD and then probably got a job as a teacher or a professor in a university. But my love of history and my desire to learn history is as strong as any PhD. And as I said, I went to the Georgia Historical Society every day. As a matter of fact, I preferred to go to the Historical Society than give tours. And I was there and certain people became familiar to me. And uh, there was this fellow who was there just about as much as I was. And one day when I was taking a break from the research, he took a break and we met on the front steps and I introduced myself and we chatted. And Gordon, like myself, was a independent researcher as opposed to a trained historian. He was a lawyer in town, but he knew more about Savannah history than anybody in Savannah, as far as I know very friendly. He encouraged me to do my research. He read my first book, Savannah Gray. He really enjoyed it. And it got to a point I didn't want to bother him. I always try to hunt down every unanswered question I can on my own, but you can't always do it. Sometimes you hit roadblocks and you just can't get past them. I could go to Gordon. And Gordon would say, oh, yeah, well, why don't you go to uh, the Savannah Morning News in 1824 and March, and you're going to find an article in there that will explain that to you. And I, sure enough, I'd go and uh, find it. And it was just such a help. But more than directing me to sources, uh, important sources that I hadn't thought of, he always encouraged me. He always said, keep at it. He said, we need you. We need people like you to go and dig in there and tell the stories that need to be told. He didn't do it every day, but he, he did it enough to, as a writer, as a researcher, you reach frustrating moments. It's not all glory. And he would get me past those tough, frustrating moments when I'd throw up my hands and I'd say, why bother? 
He was there to say, keep at it, keep going. This is important. History needs people that keep going and tell the story. So very important guy, very nice guy. Even when he learned he was terminally ill, we'd chat, and he always kept a positive attitude. So he had a big effect on me. I don't know if he realized that. I tried to tell him once. I miss him, and it's important to be like that. So when somebody comes to me and asks me, how did you learn this or where should I go? I always try to be as helpful as I can for the memory of Gordon. Well, Jim Jordan, I want to thank you for sharing the story of your friend, Gordon Byrne Smith, a guy that I wish I could have met. Sounds like a, a great gentleman, somebody who's going to help you. We all need those people on our journey of life that are going to give us a hand, especially when you're tackling something that's as sweeping as the slave traders letter book. I really appreciate you sharing it with us today. I know you said he's not that well-known a historical figure, but hopefully he will be. I hope that I could play a small part here today in spreading the name Charles Lamar and people will want to get to know him, want to pick up the book and maybe go digging around in attics for whatever <laughs> dusty secrets may still be laying there. It's amazing, again, that there are still things we can add to the historical record of the Civil War. Just as you weren't a hit on the golf course, there's nothing special about the people, as good as they are as authors, that find these things. We've spoken to a couple of authors now whose names I'm going to give in the rap and say, hey, they, they just found things. People call them. If you're in the historical society, people will find you sometimes with a great story like this. Or maybe we can all be a Gordon Byrne Smith and go out and help people along their journeys. And, and that way we leave something. We leave some footprints and we help write history, even if our name never appears on a dust jacket, either as the author or as Charles Lamar here in the Slave Traders Letter Book. Thank you so much for sharing the story with me today. You're a loss to the golf course, to the PGA, but that is our gain here. Here as readers when we can pick up great books like this and your two novels. I thank you, Dean, for the opportunity, for sharing my experiences. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully, I can be digging up some more stories in the future. Well, I'll look forward to them, for sure. I know there's only so many addicts here in New Jersey, but yeah, I've already checked mine, so I guess we have some work to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Again, the book is The Slave Trader's Letterbook, Charles Lamar, The Wanderer, and Other Tales of the African Slave Trade. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate via the Amazon banner at the top of our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Jim Jordan for kicking off 2019 with our first interview and for sharing the life of the human beings kidnapped from their homes in Africa through the eyes of the ambitious, scheming Charles Lamar. Remember, you can visit our guest at jimjordanauthor.com. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, on Instagram at the History Author Show, 
or facebook.com slash history author. If you enjoy Civil War Diaries, but don't want to reread the same ones we've seen packaged and repeated over and over, I'm looking at you, Mary Chestnut. I'd point you to three authors I've interviewed here on the show that have brought us new unpublished works about the period. First is Theodore P. Savis. He gave us an insider's view of a never-before-published memoir in The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860-1865. And then there's Paula Tarnapole Whitaker, who I met up with in historic Alexandria, Virginia, to chat about her book, A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. Plus, we chatted with Jean Barr. Like Jim, Ted, and Paula, Jean was blessed with a cache of undiscovered letters and documents that added a unique perspective to the history we thought we knew so well. Jean Barr's book is A Civil War Captain and His Lady, Love, Courtship, and Combat from Fort Donelson through the Vicksburg Campaign. You can find all those chats in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Plus, you'll want to check out our website for some of the print Q&As I'm going to be rolling out in the coming months. The first one is with Travis Smith. He's the author of Superhero Ethics, 10 Comic Book Heroes, 10 Ways to Save the World. Which one do we need most now? I get a ton of great books, and I can't interview everybody the way I did Jim Jordan today or the other guests I just mentioned. So I felt that print Q&A are a way that I could still share my passion about these books and get it to all of you out there. So check those out and see what you think. Of course, you're here because you like to listen to radio. If you do subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, be it in print or audio, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a happy new year. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. 